the only place I can ever think of of too high agreeableness and too high conscientiousness hurting you is in psychopathology. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. I'm Harrison Cayley, joined as usual by Elon Martin and Adam Daniels. Today, we are joined by Sandra Brown. Sandra is the author of just two books. Is do I have all your all of your books here, Sandra? I've got uh, first no, one. Twelve. No, there's more. Twelve, 12. books. So okay. many books I was not aware of. Well, <laughs> well, we've got two of them here. Not all twelve. <laughs> But we've got the, so we've got How to Spot a Dangerous Man Before You Get Involved from 2005. Oh, so that yeah. one's almost 20, almost 20 years old. And then I've got the, the second edition of Women Who Love Psychopaths from 2009. But you've got a third edition that I hope that we'll be able to talk about. I don't have that one yet. So yeah. you'll, uh, you'll tell me all the reasons why I need to get it right away and read it. So... <laughs> Uh, Sandra is uh, a former psychotherapist and uh, former psychotherapist. And I want you to just tell our audience what what you do now and what you've been doing recently, because I, I should just give a little bit of background. We we, of course, we've known each other for for many, many years. Um, we did some podcasts together back. I don't know. Was it 15 years ago? But uh, we haven't really yeah. been in touch since then. So we just recently got back in touch on. Substack. So I'm I'm interested in hearing what you've been up to, Sandra. So let us know what you've been doing since uh, since you're not doing psychotherapy, right? Not if I can help it. <laughs> um. Well, the la let's see. Um, the third edition of the Psychopath book came out in 2018, and before that, um. I hooked up with Purdue University to do a research project on uh, the women who end up in relationships with narcissists, antisocials, and psychopaths to see if there was any commonality um, that might serve as prevention work. And so um, that took a couple years with Purdue, and then that information um, went into the um, third edition of the Psychopath book. Um, and then the Psychopath book ended up um, going into a therapist training program. So um, we have trained uh, 12,000. 12, therapist. Uh, yeah, so that that was 10 years from Purdue to mm -hmm. developing the therapist training thing was 10 years. So I've had my head down. <laughs> do you, I'm just I'm just curious, Sandra, do you know, do you know, off the top of your head, how many therapists there are in the United in the United States? Like, do you have any um, idea what the numbers would be? Yeah, I just I just looked that up, actually, uh, almost 200,000. Okay. So that's a that's a good chunk a good chunk of the therapeutic uh demographic. <laughs> 6%. Yeah, would you say, are most of those or all of them um American or multiple countries? No, all over the world. All over. Okay, cool. Yeah. And so 
I want to ask a bit about the books and the new edition. So well, let's start with How to Spot a Dangerous Man. Um, what was the purpose in writing this book? And what what about your views have changed? Um, like, like, would you, yeah, what would you say about this book now, so many years after writing yeah. it? Yeah. Um, I, I wrote that book because uh, at the time I, I was running some groups in a domestic violence shelter. And the one uh, one particular person had been in six or seven times, and I went to pull her file, you know, out of the file cabinet was, you know, like this thick. And so I just said to her in group, clearly you're not getting what you need in order to not get in these relationships. Do you have any idea, you know, what it is that, we failed at and teaching you. And she said, I guess you need to teach me how to spot a dangerous man before I get involved. And, and so um, I said, I can do that. <laughs> and I went home and, I, you know, publishing is sort of like, you know, winning the lottery. Um, I went home, I wrote, um, I sent out 10 to 10 publishers and in a week I had sold that book mm. and that like never happens, you know, in publishing unless you already have a big, you know, name and career. Mm. So that book did really, really well in the media. Um, you know, they like the sound bites of eight dangerous man types. And it, it was written because I, I think that, and it was written for women, that women only understand dangerousness as it pertains to like physical and sexual violence. But someone that's dangerous to our well-being or can be emotional or psychological, sexual, financial, spiritual. And their concept was so narrow. And I also think they did not consider, for instance, um, choosing not to date someone who had some chronic form of mental illness. And um, it, it's it was like a taboo thing that I shouldn't judge that person. Um, and so, so many of these women were in relationships with people who had profound amounts of mental health problems. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I got a lot, of, I got a lot of crap on that book too, um, be, from like, uh, people who are very na NAMI oriented, the National Alliance for Mentally Ill, because I spoke very openly about the forms of mental health that you shouldn't date, um, or addictions, or, you know, and I just put it out there and said it. So, um, <clears throat> you know, the book did well and, and did well in the media, but there were a lot of people that thought that was very judgmental. Hmm. Do you think that, um, well, so have you, how have, how have your thoughts about the subject changed over the years if any yeah so um 
I don't know if I would write that book today. So that book is 18 years old now, and I've had, uh, you know, quite a few more years of treatment, et cetera. Um, it did well in the media because uh, there were identifiable red flags yeah. for each. A list. Yes, kind of thing. And um, I, I just don't think it's that easy. I think mm -hmm. in identifying um, people's problems, first of all, they hide them really well, especially if you're dealing with psychopaths or narcissists. Um, that's not always you know, easily identified early in a relationship. And mm -hmm. so um, I just think uh, humans are more complex than how I for first identified it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like the the um, the pop psychology articles that you see online that, you know, like 10 signs that your boss is a psychopath or something. Right. Like that, right? right. So so let's get into a bit of that a bit of that complexity because you're still like your trainings your train your training therapists you still have this um kind of drive about um kind of public education about these topics so how would you say how do you incorporate the complexity into you know those those types of endeavors um i've dropped it back to like what the DSM talks about in terms of uh, four key universal impairments, for instance, in personality disorders. So, um, and, and I think those four key elements, um, two have to do with interpersonal skills, um, which is a low or no empathy and mm -hmm. emotional intimacy. And then the other two have to do with um, the disordered person with self-identity and self-direction. And so instead of taking Dr. Robert Hare's PCLR list that has, forget how many items on it, 26 20. or 30 or something, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, it, it's a much quicker route because probably the first things that people will pick up on is the empathy and intimacy issue. So what we teach therapists, of course, is much more detailed, but for the public, for them to be able um to begin at that issue about empathy and intimacy as sort of the early red flags. Um, so we've just tried to make it easier than taking a dangerous man and all these red flags and, um, and that those four core impairments are in all personality disorders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in a sense that you've like, on the one hand, um, you found that the issue is more complex than you presented it, but on the, on the other hand, you found a way of kind of simplifying it and narrowing it down for for that right. for that purpose. Well, so, I mean, for, as far as the why people end up getting in the relationships, um, how I approached that in the Dangerous Man book um, mm -hmm. was 
pretty what I would call nurture theory oriented. You know what, okay. uh, how they were raised or uh, environment. And mm -hmm. um, since the study that we did with Purdue, studying the actual personalities of people who end up in these relationships. That was sort of the wake up call about this is more complex than just okay. you had a bad childhood. Well, let's get into that. So describe the Purdue study. Um, like how did that come about and what did it involve and what were the results? Yeah. So um, in the, the first and second edition of the Psychopath book, I had done this small study um, using what's called the TCI or the um, Temperament Character Inventory on a small amount of women, 75 women. And um, I sent the results to the creator of the TCI, Dr. Um, Honinger. Um, and we had some conversations about that in which he said the consistency of it was uh, really interesting and in that I should go deeper. Um, he said, you usually don't see sort of across the board um, the same types of outcomes are usually sort of all over the place. Mm -hmm. So um, I not technically, you know, a, a researcher, I'm just a systems kind of thinker. Mm -hmm. um, so I started knocking on doors, just, you know, calling universities and no one told me you, you don't really do that. <laughs> That's not how you get. <laughs> I, so I, I just did. And Purdue um, in their uh, personality lab, they usually study um, personality disorders and that end of the spectrum, psychopathy and personality disorders. So this coming in with relatively normal women that might have some traits a little bit over the bell curve was interesting to them because they always have their nose stuck in psychopathy. And so they, they offered to do it. Um, and uh, we ended up testing over 600 women. So it was a, you know, a pretty big study and the outcomes were like identical to mm -hmm. what I had used earlier in the TCI. And the guy from Purdue said the same thing. You never see this across the board with not much variation. He said, he said, you might see it in psychopaths, but you don't see it in like normal people. But I said, how often in your lab do you even study normal people? And he said, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so anyway, um, the, the, the interesting thing on their personality, um, assessment was that, um, all of their traits were a little bit elevated, but there were two that were, um, significant that I think played into the relational dynamics. One is the trait um, of, that's called agreeableness. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and within that trait are facets that make up a trait. 
Um, and those facets included things like um, empathy, compassion, tolerance, trust. Mm -hmm. um, and the other trait was the trait of conscientiousness. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, um, and so those are kind of stick with it kind of people. And so when we look at, uh, there's all sorts of assumptions about how people end up in relationships, you know, with psychopaths. And and, um, and for the most part, it was the wrong kinds of assumptions. Everyone thinks they'll see them coming. They all come marked like Charlie Manson with the swastika between their, their eyes when, and, you know, in reality, they, um, fly under, you know, fly under the radar. And so in looking at that, expect the trait of agreeableness helped us understand targeting who personality disorders or psychopaths would like, empathetic, mm -hmm. trusting, cooperative mm -hmm. kinds of people. So it explained a lot about how they were targeted and how they entered the relationship. And then the trait of conscientiousness with the stick to itness of that was the difficulty about disengagement and why mm -hmm. for a lot of them, they were in these relationships for decades. Yeah. That's uh, that makes me wonder if, um, because it makes sense to me that that would be basically a, a trait that the psychopath is looking for, like, you know, in his prey, essentially, um, finding that agreeable person. I wonder if if that is the trait they're specifically looking for, and it's just the conscientious women that end up sticking around. Like, do you think it might be possible that they go after agreeable women, but if the, the woman isn't agreeable, she might just leave the oh, relationship? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So um, when I did you know, work with psychopaths a million years ago um, and had them in, in group, I asked them, um, how do you target? And they said they uh, will often, will what they call play the empathy card. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, if they approach somebody at a cocktail party and um, lead the conversation into their sad childhood, their recent divorce, that they can't see the kids, that wife has taken the kids. And the person says, good luck with that. Sorry, you know, sorry about your luck. Good luck with that. I'm going to go get some hors d'oeuvres. Um, you know, he's shot. Uh, but if she answers, oh my God, that I can't imagine that. And let me give you my therapist's phone number. And I just read the best book. And and they reply with this, you know, level of empathy. And and so the interesting thing was to see that that I don't know if we really think about this a lot with personality, um, except in psychopathology. Um, what a little bit too much of something. Mm -hmm. how that can become a risk factor. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, these having too much empathy. And the interesting thing about their the trust that is part of that facet is that these people tended to have blind trust. 
as opposed to people that don't have too much agreeableness have conditional trust. I don't know you from Adam and you earn, you know, my trust over a period of time. Mm -hmm. But it, with these people who have too much empathy, it's like uh, they, they hand out their credit card of trust. I don't know you from Adam and I'll wait for you to violate my trust. But being conscientious, also having that higher conscientious, um, that violation of trust had to happen hundreds of times because mm -hmm. of their stick to itness. And yeah. so it just, um, you know, Purdue said this is like the perfect storm. Um, that they had these two trait elevations and then knowing what the the trait highs and lows are of psychopaths and personality disorder he said it was like the perfect storm um yeah. for yeah for those to hook up and it's almost like it's almost like a like puzzle pieces because psychopaths are extremely low in agreeableness of course the most disagreeable and well unless they're pretending and and I'd say probably the majority of them are low in conscientiousness. Yes. So there's, there's that's an interesting opposite. mix. Yeah. So when you talk about opposites attract, I, I I don't know that I would say that about the women because um, they were targeted and, you know. Mm. <clears throat> well, and they were... And they were manipulated too. It's like the psychopath right. isn't presenting himself no. as a, right. an, an, a disagreeable, you know, lazy schlum. Right. right. And, and so they are complete opposites. And that's where like that trait of conscientiousness begins to carry that relationship. Um, uh, you know, finding a counselor for them or going to couples counseling um, because they are so conscientious that they, they do double duty, which, you know, psychopaths absolutely need. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about the uh, 12,000 therapists that you helped train, because uh, on your websites, it, it says that you have um, a different approach in a couple of respects to how therapy is conducted. Uh, and you make a couple of distinctions. One of them is that um, you you don't want the the client to necessarily be repeating the story as they understand it over and over again. That there's a another kind of approach that may be more um, healing or therapeutic to them than you know this is what happened to me. You know. It, something that might be repeated in in group sessions uh, more conventionally yeah and yeah yeah i was wondering if you might talk about that in general and any other um uh another thing that i found very interesting was that uh, you had a i think a <coughs> neurophysiologist or a uh who was also uh assisting you with this work uh, which suggested that there were actually brain changes um uh, oh, yeah. incurred in in clients mm -hmm. and i thought oh my goodness uh you know that right. that speaks to a whole other level of of therapy right. uh, yeah so, um so 
during the 10 years when I had my head down, you know, researching, um, one of the things that I started to study was that um, I am trained in trauma. And, you know, uh, before this work, I worked a lot with people who had personality disorders and and a lot of them also had trauma. So I am trauma trained. And, um, you know, what was interesting um, to me was that these survivors coming out of these pathological relationships had a different kind of like neurocognitive impact. It, it was so much worse than just a trauma only client, um, which is having treated, you know, PTSD, there was something different about this neurocognitive impact when survivors had been, um, especially, you know, with psychopaths and antisocials. And I guess in retrospect, we should expect that what a psychopath or an antisocial can do to you psychologically is more, but we thought that was all just on the emotional level um, and, and so I, a lot of my study had been looking at why their neurocognitive condition was so much worse than just someone who had PTSD, but not from a psychopath or an antisocial. And um, so there's some unique things that happen um, with these survivors. And one of my... <laughs> My theories in this that came out in the third edition of the book was about this impact of cognitive dissonance. And it, this happened to sort of tie in to that, those traits of agreeableness and conscientiousness. And it turned out the more that I studied why their cognitive dissonance was so severe, um, it is connected to elevated traits of conscientiousness. So these women who already had high conscientiousness were at more risk of developing cognitive dissonance. And so cognitive dissonance in those relationships is like, I love, I loathe, I want, I don't want them, I trust them, I don't trust them. And... Um, and it explained why a little bit about why their neurocognitive condition was so bad because 75% of them have trauma from these relationships. And now they have this other factor of cognitive dissonance. And the more that I began to study that, I looked at fMRIs that um, cognitive dissonance can even be mapped in the brain. And so it, creates hyperneural activity, a firestorm of comparing, I love, I loathe, I want, I don't want, and um, which is part of why their neurocognitive condition was so severe. And I would imagine also that uh, the cognitive dissonance presents in all, you know, in, in many different contexts, not just in the language that they use to describe their relationships, that it has an overall effect in their thinking ability in general. Absolutely. It's like brain damage. <clears throat> so 
So I dug deeper, <laughs> again, like back to the drawing board, um, and started looking at all the things that cognitive distance can impact, um, which has to do with executive functioning. So these, you know, my clients, what, what didn't compute compute for me is that my clients were attorneys, doctors, in order to function at that level and that job, you have to have really good executive functioning skills. And so many of these people were going on um, disability and taking leave absences because they couldn't balance their checkbook. They couldn't make a decision. I had a surgeon, you know, who couldn't do surgery because, because of that. And so I began to look at everything that trauma and cognitive dissonance can affect. And it began to reduce their executive functioning, um, like decision-making, rational judgment. And so it also explained why, why these relationships went on for decades when these are really bright people mm -hmm. um, that could not, you know, uh, get their decision making and rationale working enough to make the decision to leave. And so we began to really see this as a neurocognitive condition, which is why when you said um that we have this principle about not just sitting in therapy, telling the story over and over again. Yeah. Thanks it, for coming it, back to that. In flames, <laughs> uh, um, the cognitive dissonance, it inflames the trauma. And so very much their early um, needs are very neurocognitive, um, trying to get the brain working again before you can even work on therapy. Oh, wow. Huh. So, uh, is, so not, not inflaming the brain in, in repeating, you know, the experiences and the narrative of the, of the trauma. Uh, is there a, is there a counter therapy to that? Is, is any part of the talking therapy, um, better, uh, formed or, or better presented or, or structured might be a better word uh, in in helping them to come to terms with with their story. Right. So um, there is a time and place where we do do that. Um, it's just not an early treatment because of because of the neurocognitive um, approaches uh, mm -hmm. or condition. And, and so um, I think what has, I just don't see it out there anymore. Of course, I was trained in the 19, 1990 in trauma <laughs> treatment by Bessel van der Kolk, I mean, a million years ago. And what was really big back then was this process of stabilization um, and you just don't see it in treatment anymore. And so I'm old school and, you know, I thought I, I bet that would be very helpful with these survivors who have such neurocognitive. They're so triggered. You can't get anywhere near their storyline without 
you know, setting off more trauma and cognitive dissonance. I mean, mm. so um, I thought, well, we can't just run at it, you know, with trauma treatment. These are people that need old school sort of stabilization about learning how to, um, you know, work with a lot of the trauma symptoms, um, especially the um, the neurocognitive stuff. So we kind of work with the brain early um, and, and wait for some of that to stabilize um, and for the cognitive dissonance to reduce and get a better handle on triggering before we jump right into the storyline. Do you find with, um, well, I'll give a little bit of background. I just um, got a copy of, well, as you know, I write uh, the p political ponderology substack. Mm -hmm. So, um, and Lobachevsky, the author of that, he wrote a couple other books that weren't published in, or that weren't translated into English. And so I just got a, a copy of one of his Polish books. Um, and the, it's called Word Surgery, and it's his book on psychotherapy. And he's got chapters on <clears throat> dealing with people under the influence of psychopaths um, and kind of kind of related topics. And so just kind of, I was going through and just putting random paragraphs into into Deeple to translate and just see, oh. see some of the ideas in there. And yeah. one of the things he said, I can't, um, this is just off, this is just by memory, so I might get the details a bit wrong, but um, he was talking about the relationship, about people in a relationship with psychopaths. I think he was talking about women specifically, but it might have been more general. And he said that, um, you know, one of the first stages, I can't remember what the first the first stage that he he mentioned was, but then, then he used the uh, then he said then comes what he called decriterialization, which I have no idea what that means, but I think it might relate to what you were talking about with the cognitive dissonance, because um, it sounds kind of kind of like losing your criteria, losing your your standards for for what's going on and your ability to kind of like think yeah. rationally and see the world rationally. That's the kind of kind of what I got got out of that. But then he said, but then the, the last thing he mentioned was kind of coming to coming to this awareness, like you're being um, kind of stalked by demons, like there's something in your life that's just uh, like, like you're doing battle with something. And so he kind of contrasted that with the the first, like the the initial situation where I guess you're kind of just under the under the spell. Yeah. So with some of these women, does it does it get to the point where um, with some of them, where they come to that realization like on their own and they, and they struggle with that. Um, like, or do you see any kind of stages like in the development of how they approach these relationships? Um, in getting into them or getting out of them? Well, both, because there are some that, you know, haven't gotten to that stage of getting out yet. Right. So what is it that brings them to the point of, of getting out? Well, <clears throat> A lot of it is exactly what you just said. There is, I would say the vast majority of them indicate some spiritual sense of evil. Mm. And they all say, I don't care whether they're agnostics or that. And they always want always want me to write about that, that, that soul caring and that spiritual 
what is that ookiness kind of stuff. And, and so I, that is a big part of it. And then for a lot of people, it is the decline in their neurocognitive condition that becomes so just, just, hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. Disconcerting. Yeah. They just, um, are so scared about their neurocognitive condition. And, um, and then the internet, you know, it's been very helpful with being able to just Google, you know, what some of these people's behaviors are. And, um, you know, a lot more information now that's available. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, usually there, it, it is the beginning of the, cognitive dissidence that makes them go out and start Googling that words and actions don't match. Mm-hmm. Um, or there's some thread that gets pulled and all of a sudden you find this hidden history and hidden life and um, mm. some loose thread and or uh, the women call it when the mask slips. So when they actually see the other side of yeah, the mass. Mm, 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 okay, that's interesting. Um, I want to I want to get back to about how your thoughts kind of changed with the studies. So you said first of all, you you originally were kind of approaching it from the kind of nur- nature or, or from the nurture environment perspective. So that might be like um, to use the Purdue study as an example. It would be like saying, oh, well, you know, or a previous way of looking at it might have been, well, these women got might probably got in these relationships because they learned from an early age, blah, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. But what, what you're finding, what you found in the study is that, well, there all these women actually had some things that were in common. It's like you're, what you're actually finding is the women who are predisposed to to this kind of re- to getting it or to being trapped in this kind of relationship, because right. it's not like every woman who's highly agreeable and highly conscientious will will get into a relationship with a psychopath there probably aren't that many aren't that many psychopaths to pair up you know equally in numbers i hope not but um um oh so what oh yeah so there's um so there's this tension so from that perspective it might be a matter of targeting um like do a doing a, a different kind of targeting of these women you know targeting these women and saying look you're you're kind of You've got the the traits that kind of right. can create a danger situation, right? right? So, do you think that there's a value in in targeting women with those specific personality traits? And how do you see that tied into like an overall framework of just a general education about you know cluster B or personality disorders or psychopaths in general? Right. Well, um, <clears throat> as we've complained about for years, um, we have poor public pathology education. The good thing that did happen with the Dangerous Man book is that book has been used in middle schools and high schools, women's prison systems. I mean, that's, even though it's to me now sort of simplistic, it's a good primer, you know, at least getting people to to understand, you know, um, personality disorders. But as far as you know, a big campaign, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. Those are risk factors for sure. Um, 
But until, you know, that that public pathology education gets some kind of funding in order to do that, you know, we limp along with survivors finding the information after the fact. Mm. Or, mm-hmm. you know, wherever yeah. the book ha- has been, you know, used. But, I mean, part of what we also look at, not with Purdue, but just um, in our client base, is that this, you know, trade, higher trade of agreeableness does translate into career choices. Mm-hmm. Um, nurses, therapists, you know, um, mm-hmm. teachers. Yep. And so there, you know, if there was a way to reach through career mm-hmm. choice, yeah, when those they're networks. Getting, yeah. Or when they're in nursing school, um, you know, yeah. how you, here's your proclivity and your personality it's all great. Um, you're a warm, loving person, but there are a couple risk factors. And that's yeah. what, what Purdue said. He said, with these women's trait elevations, um, he said, uh, the only place I can ever think of, of too high agreeableness and too high conscientiousness hurting you is in psychopathology. That's it. Mm. He said, these make the most wonderful friends, employers, employees. So the only thing that, you know, we had talked about was how to get that information into certain career paths. Yeah. No, that, that sounds like a great idea. I hadn't even thought of that. Um, and that, uh, if I can jump in for a second, that, um, because I watched an interview that you did a couple of years ago where you were talking about, uh, you know, what is super traits and you were kind of like, um, you know, you were describing all of the things that you've talked about here where, um, you know, like you say, these uh, high agreeableness and high conscientiousness can be really great things. Um, but then they also come with a risk factor. Um, and something that you had said later on was one of the biggest aha moments um, from some of the, the women that you you know, would would help treat some of the biggest aha moments came from uh, showing them the, the like the neuroscience, getting them to understand the actual like, I guess, getting them past the point of rationalization, getting them out of their little um, like Fantasy. loopholes. Yeah, <laughs> their little you, fantasies. You can change. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, neuroscience, uh, God bless neuroscience, <laughs> it changed completely how we approach. And like, um, no matter how they could come into our agency, if they were coming in for counseling, if they were reading the book, if they're in our online course, if they're if we're training therapists, we teach neuroscience and neurobiology of personality disorders and psychopathy to everyone. So in any form, it has been our best friend for breaking through that cognitive dissonance. Well, he's bad, but maybe he can change um, kind of thing. And that neuroscience, um, 
I, I hated using the neuroscience when they would come here for retreats because they were all puddles on the floor after at the end of the neuroscience because it, it was so much reality. I, I mean, it was just busted through yeah. any kind of defense mechanism. Mm, yeah. It was the best thing. And I, I you know, I teach the therapist too. Use, use this brain then and use it. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, it'll cut a year off therapy. Mm, wow. <laughs> do you also incorporate, um, do you, do you mention statistics? Um, because th that just brought to mind one of the other things that Lobachevsky recommended. He, in his practice, he said that um, he thought it was a really good idea to tell <clears throat> his patients who are in relationships like this. Um, well, first to describe the, the different types of psychopathologies to to yeah. to show to to show them that well, this is an actual thing here. Like here, like we we know we know what this is here. It's an actual thing here. Look at this. But then also to to bring up the. The statistics in the sense of like this might be for a child of a of a psychopath or a child of like a, a a mother with borderline personality disorder or something and say and to to kind of reassure them that well this is actually a small minority of the population it's like you shouldn't go around thinking that 99 percent of the population are are like this basically to to help them um, regain the capacity to trust other people because a lot of these people didn't have trust. They could, they couldn't trust other people and it, it let them, well, if you find that actually the majority of people, you could probably trust them to a great, a much greater degree than you could trust your father actually, um, or your mother. Um, I'm just wondering if you have any, any of your own experience with that, with, with, with just describing statistics, well, sti yeah, I mean, demographics. <clears throat> They come out of these relationships, of course, trusting no one. And, mm -hmm. you know, they, in our course, um, we have a monthly group call kind of thing. And they're like, I know my next door neighbor's a psychopath. And I also think my third grade teacher was, and now I see him everywhere. <laughs> well, that's a trauma response. That's that's still hyper arousal that's still hyper vigilance with them seeing it everywhere when it's not everywhere and so that starts to reduce you know in trauma treatment um where that gets much more balanced um but it, that most of them come out of that acting exactly like that, um, a mm. psychopath behind every tree. Um, but we do have to work with that blind trust thing. So, no, I don't. Yeah, okay. I Yeah, I don't say to them, um, oh, it probably won't happen again because... Yeah, yeah. If, if there's 30 people at a cocktail party and one psychopath, they're going to make a beeline to them. Mm -hmm. So we try to balance between um, vigilance. You have risk factors. You do mm -hmm. need to know some things um, about yourself and your super traits, but also about pathology and differentiating that from hypervigilance which yeah. is a trauma response. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that it might be different for like a for a, a parent child relationship than it would be for an intimate yeah. relationship, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Okay. Um 
Hmm. Well, yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to follow up on that a little bit because um, we had the opportunity to have George Simon uh, here uh, a couple of years ago now, I think. And um, what I really appreciated about his book, Character Disturbance, was how he uh, drills down and specifies, you know, what is not only of a, uh, a narcissistic uh, character, character disturbed individual and, and what that uh, looks like and sounds like and, and how it presents. But I, if I remember correctly, because it's a while since I've read it, I think he also uh, outlines some of the ways in which, you know, basically normal, healthy, uh, well-adjusted people behave and interact interpersonally. And I, I, I really appreciated that about the book. And what I was wondering is if there is any place um, in the therapy that, that uh, women receive uh, that um, presents models for healthy behavior and relationships, and if that is part of the uh, like you're like almost like you're getting re-educated as to what a good relationship is. So our online course is, um, uh, a year long and it is a trauma reduction and cognitive dissonance reduction program. After Mm. that first year, there is a second, what we call a second step program. And once they're, you know, their executive functioning is working, their trauma's down, their cognitive distance down, their brain works again. Um, in the second year, we work with um, really coming to understand their super traits in their daily life, not just in their intimate life, and about learning how to um, become more familiar with how that trait of agreeableness would want to lead if um, they aren't paying attention, we call it chaperoning, um, paying attention to what your innate personality wants to do and blind trust and too much empathy. So we spend time on that. And then we, we also work uh, on um, relationship, healthy relationship stuff, um, dating, Dating with super traits, you know, what <laughs> you're, you're out with somebody, what are you going to do with that empathy? What are you going to do with that blind trust? What are you going to do with that? Yeah. And, and it's like a com- they have to completely learn new ways of being. And that's hard because your personality <clears throat> is innate. And mm-hmm. it, it, you have to be horribly um, <laughs> conscious. Right especially for them and um so yeah that the second year when their brain works better we get into get into all that yeah it sounds like a a course in metacognition almost like you know okay now i'm i'm running my you know my empathy uh uh, horses and uh i I can afford to take a step back here. And And we have, and it is metacognition. What does empathy sound like in your head when you're getting ready to do something? You're on a date and he's giving you some storyline 
What are you saying in your head? What's your body language? What kind of words come out of your mouth? So it's, yeah, it's a lot of um, reworking that. And in the beginning, they just couldn't get it. Um, I don't know if I wasn't describing it well. (laughs) So um, the way I taught them was through the Golden Girls television show. So Rose is agreeable. Mm -hmm. Um, And Dorothy is conscientious. And so I would Mm. say, okay, so we're talking about, you know, you're going out on this date. Who's going? Are you letting Rose go on this date or is Dorothy (laughs) going on this date? Right. And they could, and it's so funny, they could absolutely shift that thing. So, (laughs) oh, I don't. That's great. (laughs) Well, that brings up an interesting point because, um, you know, you you bring up, uh, you know, basically a a source of of fiction and and fictional characters who nonetheless represent certain uh, characteristics or ways of being. Um, you know, that's their, that's their, their thing. And it's quite obvious and predictable in a sense, whenever you see them to expect these, these types of behaviors. Um, because, uh, you know, we've been reading novels of a romantic nature, um, over the past few years, uh, as a kind of, um, exercise and, in, in thinking about what, you know, relationships healthy relationships, even among the narcissistically wounded, how they might evolve into something that is healthy and, and romantic and, and genuine and authentic. So, uh, but it is through the, the, you know, the lives of these characters that we're, you know, that's part of the exercise. You, you can't help but get a little identified with them and, and their struggles yeah. and, and experience this happy ending. So I thought I'd just throw that in because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, thank you for being a friend. You know, Golden Girls, that's that's an interesting tool. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, just trying to make it something identifiable for them. And I don't know if that works, so. Yeah, no, that, that's a great idea. You need, I mean, they're just big words until you have something to, you know, a picture in your mind that you can tie to it, right? So... Golden Girls is perfect, but I want to, um, I think we've almost been going an hour, maybe, you know, just a few more questions and then we'll, we'll call it a night, but I'm wondering, I'm sure, you know, I haven't looked at the YouTube, um, statistics lately, but I'm sure we have a few, at least a few young, uh, agreeable, conscientious, um, women viewers and listeners to our podcast, um, you know, at least fingers crossed. So would, would you have any advice for, for like young women, who might have these traits, um, who, who might be either, you know, just starting dating or, you know, be in their twenties or, you know, about to start maybe uh, about to get married or something like that. Any advice for them? Well, you know, um, the testing instrument that we, that Purdue used was a five factor, the big five, Mm -hmm. which is you can get it online and, um, take it, you know, yourself and we tell women to do that you know and again personality science just hasn't 
it's just now starting to really grow as a field. And I don't think we think about personality that much um, mm. or the risks of it. Uh, most people only know, for instance, whether they're extroverted or introverted. And that's about it. That's about all they know mm. about their personality. And so for women, I would say, you know, take the big five and see, especially in um looking at where you rank in agreeableness and conscientiousness. And if that is a risk factor, um, you know, go by our website and learn some more about that because there are things that you have to be conscious of. They, um, they make you a wonderful person who you are, but in certain people's hands, they are a weapon. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can't, you know, protect what you don't understand. I mean, at least now with our survivors, when, when they're going out, um, they, they become aware of certain things that need protection in them and, and mm-hmm. that trait of agreeableness. And like I said, you know, they send Dorothy out on the date. They don't send Rose out. So, mm-hmm. so they're, but, there are things that that survivors can um, learn about how to chaperone their own personality traits. Mm. Just off, the, um, I'm just curious if you know off the top of your head what, like, how high in agreeableness and conscientiousness, 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 um, how high these women were. Like, was it like um, like 85th percentile or 95th or uh, or did, uh, was there a range? Well, the five factor is ranked from either zero or one to five. Okay. And, and it's a self inventory thing. And these women tested um, four as a four in agreeableness and conscientiousness. Three okay. is sort of normal, four right. is right above the bell curve. Five, you're probably dependent personality disorder. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So if they take it online, um, um, they if they're hitting a four, they're in that high bell curve. Hmm. Yeah. But as far as like how, what was the percentage of the six hundred? I, I forget. He said it was so astronomically high. He had to run down the hall and show it to other people. Mm-hmm. Was that was that study um, published, or was it was it more? They just had you just had the results, and then you put them in your book. Um, <clears throat> first I had the results. He's just now. Mm-hmm. He had another big, big, big study after that. He's just now submitting them to peer okay. review journals. Okay. So, uh, um, personality journals and like relationship journals. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have anything to do with that. Um, yeah. you know, I'm like, give me my data and then you can do. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, but he is pursuing. Yeah. He is pursuing that. Okay. So for all of the, for all of the, the number nerds, all of, I guess all of the, <laughs> all of the arcane details will be in in those in those papers right yeah 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 um it it was 
you know, it was significant. Like I said, not so high over um, the bell curve that they were up into dependent personality, but one toe over the line, mm-hmm. enough to be at risk. Yeah. yeah. Well, I I hadn't thought about um, about dependent personality in terms of agreeableness. That's interesting. Um, what about avoidant personality? How would you characterize that on the big five? Anything off the, off the top of your head? Um, high in neuroticism. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which, okay. I'll have to think about that. Which, which, I wish they used a different word because when the women go and take that test, they, you know, that sounds so judgmental, that word neuroticism. Mm-hmm. And actually what it is, is a measurement of anxiety. It's actually mm-hmm. an anxiety scale. Yeah, negative emotion in general. Yeah. Just, yeah. just a, a quick question, because earlier uh, and in your writings, you talk about um, women getting victimized in, in a number of different ways, uh, psychologically, emotionally, financially, and you put in spiritually. And when you were talking about it a little earlier, if I understood correctly, you said that you know these um, these ladies, some of them might uh, interpret uh, the the damage that they've received as a kind of evil, mm-hmm. um, and which can be attributed to either um, you know the, the cognitive dissonance and not being able to determine what the heck it is. Or possibly um, some other, you know, sense maybe. Uh, and, yeah, they, and so they, they meant that in terms of they sensed evil in that person. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and so leading to that is my question: Does um, is there a place in in therapy you think for prayer? and religion and uh, anything along those lines. Is that a part of? I I meet them where they're at. My undergraduate degree is in theology. (laughs) So, um, you know, if I have done that, especially when they have that sense of evil, you know, that having had that experience of it and that it feels like it is still present and they want, you know, some people use Reiki or energy clearing um, or, um, you know, if they want, yeah, I, I've done prayer. People ask me to anoint them with oil. I, you know, <laughs> But you pretty much you take their you you follow their lead, right? Yeah, yeah I don't introduce that. Um, I don't, no, but it's it is not uncommon because like I said one of their big issues is feeling that sense of evil, and then then they get into you know all the stuff that person has been inside my body, you know, and then it becomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it is it, a big issue. Yeah. Well, it's getting it's getting dark. It might be 
might be time to, to call it a night. Um, Sandra, where can people find your work? Um, what, what websites and other places would you recommend? Uh, um, if you're a survivor, you can go to uh, saferelationshipsmagazine.com. If you are a therapist, you can go to survivortreatment.com. Okay, and you've got your website too, which is Sandra L. Brown M. A dot com, I believe. Yeah, I, I don't post a whole lot on there. No? Mostly okay. just safe relationships and survivor treatment. Okay, well, well, we'll put those links in the description of the, the podcast and the video so people can get there. Great. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Sandra. Thank, thank you guys <laughs> yeah. for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, we'll do it again sometime. So take care. Good night. And we'll talk again later.